0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with business people, policymakers and experts around the world. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has hit European gas supplies big time and triggered a five-fold rally in gas prices. This is a massive problem for Europe, which is still very much dependent on the fossil fuel for its industrial production and to heat houses. I am Lisa Jukka, the European Business Editor for Reuters Breaking News. In this episode of The Exchange, I sat down with Dr. Jack Sharples, a research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, to try and understand whether the steps taken by European nations to tackle the region's energy emergency go far enough. These include looking for non-Russian sellers of fossil fuels and refilling, at great cost, the continent's gas storage facilities. But will these efforts help European economies survive this winter and, crucially, Also, the next one to find out. Listen on. Welcome, welcome, Jack, to the exchange. It's a real pleasure to have you here uh, at this new episode, which we would like uh, to concentrate really on Europe's energy crisis.
1: Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So obviously, you are an expert, I mean, you've been following energy issues, in particular gas issues, for a number of years, and, uh, you know, I was really hoping uh, to use this opportunity to go through some of uh, the issues which have been on people's mind, in particular in Europe, uh, since uh, the start of the Ukrainian war. Um, So maybe to kick off the conversation, let me ask you a very direct question will Europe manage to get through the winter, energy-wise?
1: So, to address it specifically from a natural gas perspective, that's my my area of specialism, the short answer is yes, the longer answer is uh, yes, but with the caveats of um, potentially at high prices, we're going to be watching lots of different uh, moving parts on this on this chessboard, whether that is uh, supply from different sources or whether it's also the level of European demand, and then finally the rate at which we will take gas out of storage.
0: Absolutely. So maybe let's unpack this answer for our uh, listeners uh, to to try and understand better the scenario. obviously, Uh, Europe uh, has been a a very big importer of natural gas, in particular from Russia. If I remember correctly, we've been importing 150-155 billion cubic metres of gas, including LNG. Um, uh, And uh, uh, this has changed uh, since the war started. So uh, maybe let's start by explaining that. I mean, what has changed uh, since the conflict?
1: So I think a good place to start is by laying out where Europe gets its gas from. Uh, So Europe produces its own gas. And when I say Europe, by the way, uh, I mean the EU plus the UK. So Europe produces its own gas. The largest producers are the UK and the Netherlands. Uh, And then you have a number of second order producers like Germany and Italy and Poland and Romania. Now, on top of that, we obviously import quite a lot. Uh, We import gas from Norway by pipeline. We've been importing Russian gas by pipeline. We import gas from Azerbaijan into southeastern Europe, also by pipeline. And then finally, by pipeline, we also receive supplies from North Africa, Algeria and Libya into Spain and Italy. And then finally, on top of that, obviously, we have liquefied natural gas imports, which are rather more spread around the European continent. But a lot of uh, Europe's import capacity for LNG is actually concentrated both on the Iberian Peninsula in Spain and Portugal and in the UK and Northwest Europe. So we have several uh, LNG import terminals in northern France, Belgium and the Netherlands. Now, of course, the big missing link there is is Germany. Uh, Germany was the largest importer of Russian gas. When we lost access to Russian supplies via Nord Stream and the Yamal Europe pipeline, it created this uh, lack of supply in northwest Europe. In the UK, the Netherlands, northern France, Belgium, we've seen an increase in liquefied natural gas imports to offset that. But of course, Germany has no LNG import terminals. And so that that is why we've seen the German government putting great efforts uh, into planning for new uh, access to LNG over the coming 12 months.
0: Okay so so obviously i mean what's been very worrying is uh, uh, also the massive increase in the price of gas uh, in europe uh, the ttf ban- benchmark you know has soared uh, i i haven't uh, checked this morning but it's been hovering around 200 euros per megawatt i mean you can uh, give me a, a different update uh, if you have that but you know we were talking probably six seven times what it used to be? I mean, would that be correct? I mean, it's, it's, it's a massive rise. Uh, is that the result of the um, reduced supply from from Russia uh, or are there other reasons, I mean, for this incredible rally which we have seen in gas prices?
1: So certainly the reduction in pipeline supply from Russia is part of the reason and certainly part of the reason that we've seen prices surging this summer, uh, particularly into northwestern Europe, where the market is now very much constrained. So you have uh, pipeline supplies from Norway at their full capacity. You have uh, Dutch production is constrained uh, thanks to the, the earthquake issues around the Groningen uh, gas field. You have now an absence of Russian gas into Northwest Europe, and you have LNG arriving into the UK, being regasified and re-exported to Northwest continental Europe, to Belgium and the Netherlands, and those pipelines are also full. So in Northwest Europe, you have a market that is crying out for more gas supply, and there is simply not any more available, um, given that the LNG import terminals there are, are operating at their full capacity. So that's part of the problem. But actually, the problem began more like 12 to 18 months ago, um, sort of in the second half of 2021, when gas prices around the world started rising rather rapidly. Now, I would say part of the reason for this is that structurally speaking, traditionally, Europe has been the market of last resort for global LNG, the balancing element. So you have large centers of LNG production and export in North America, in the Middle East, and in Australia, along with you know numerous second order producers. And really, Northeast Asia was the primary market there. Um, and then once you took away uh, sort of that level of demand, whatever was left over could, could effectively wash up onto European shores, because LNG traders knew that if you have a cargo and you needed to sell it, then Europe had a very liquid market you might not get an amazing price, but you could always be sure of selling your cargo. Now, uh, during 2020, obviously, we had COVID and lockdowns. Global gas demand fell. And so the global market became very oversupplied, um, which means that Europe got lots of cheap LNG, basically, Uh, more than we could even handle. A lot of it went into storage. In 2021, economies around the world opened up again. Gas demand surged. But global LNG production did not keep pace, so the whole global market tightened in the second half of 2021 and that's why we saw these uh, price increases um, which really kicked in at the start of winter 2021. So then if you go forward several months to February 2022 when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, the market was already structurally quite tight. And then when you take Russian supply away from what is already a tight market, then that becomes even tighter and the prices soared.
0: Absolutely. Um, so now we are in the, the situation where we are so, you know, tight uh, supply, demand still high, a crisis, a war in Europe. And we have seen European nations coming forward with um, different approaches and different Uh, solutions or attempt uh, to reduce, uh, if we want, you know, the pain which is being felt by consumers and also companies. And we've had proposals for introducing a gas cap. We've had um, countries imposing windfall taxes on energy uh, producers who have have made a lot of money uh, on the back of this crisis. Uh, There is discussion of maybe have club purchases uh, uh, from the EU in particular. So I I was wondering whether we could look at some of these uh, uh, options to see whether any of those could could work. Uh, Also considering that uh, European Union leaders in particular, will meet uh, at the end of October to discuss uh, the Energy Summit and, and maybe try to address it with concrete action. So what could work and what is really a bit of a dead end?
1: Well, I think before we start discussing different options, first of all, we really have to understand why are prices high? Prices are high uh, because the supply is constrained, um, because we have lost um, most of the Russian gas uh, that we used to get, and we are finding it difficult to replace all of those volumes. We are also finding it difficult because gas demand uh, up until fairly recently has been sustained. So if you look at the three sectors in which we consume gas, we use gas in heavy industry. We use gas to heat our homes and our commercial properties, and we use gas for power generation. Um, Now, the the high prices so far have had a, a, a fairly serious effect. Uh, on heavy industry. So we've seen, you know, some reduction in 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 economic activity uh, that has brought down uh, industrial gas demand, but it's still there. It hasn't disappeared. Then if you look at using gas for power generation, here is where we see uh, less elasticity. Um, So if you look at how else we generate power, we use nuclear, Uh, some countries still use coal, and we have renewables. And then when you take all of those to one side, and you look at demand on the other side of the balance, gas is normally what we use to fill that gap. So even if gas is really expensive, if you don't use it to generate power, you face a shortage of electricity. Mm. So you just move the problem. So the only way you can reduce your demand for gas in electricity is either to produce more electricity from alternative sources, but of course that takes a long time to build out new wind farms and solar farms and so on, or you reduce your electricity demand. And then finally, when you consider gas for heating uh, in the residential area or use of gas in small and medium enterprises, a lot of these consumers have been protected by price caps because we don't want people freezing in their homes over the winter. We don't want uh, businesses closing up and down the high street um, alongside uh, some of these heavy industries that are struggling with high prices because governments are very scared of making social conditions very difficult for households and kickstarting a recession uh, economically across the whole country. So that is really the key problem. All of these other proposals to try and bring prices down are effectively trying to cover over for the fact that the market is very tight, that supply relative to demand is somewhat limited. And the only thing that will bring the prices back down permanently is to improve that supply-demand balance.
0: So, so can we maybe work on the demand side? Uh, so, I mean, I'm not talking necessarily rationing, but maybe saving energy. How efficient is Europe, uh, for instance? You know, have we been efficient in the use of our energy or have we just consumed a lot of gas because it was, quite frankly, cheap?
1: I I think that's a fair point. Um, I think there is huge scope uh, for increases in efficiency, Um, and like I say, not just for the consumption of gas directly, but for the consumption of gas to generate electricity. If we use less electricity, we'll use less gas. Um, So I would say uh, one of the things that's very important is firstly uh, with households. Public information campaigns getting people to have their boilers serviced, set them to the right temperature, and during this present winter, uh, maybe even turn your thermostat down by one or two degrees it's not It's not pleasant to say to people it's better to put a sweater on than to to turn your heating up, um, but we're all in this together um, so that's that's one thing secondly my my worry is with heavy industry that's very energy intensive that once it closes down certain parts of it will not reopen again. So if you have things like glass, like and, steel
0: makers, glass, uh, sorry, furnaces. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, anything where you're dealing with molten materials that if you turn off the supply of heat, then those um, uh, commodities will harden and damage your machinery. So then it takes a long time to get them back open again. And of course, every time you close down a factory, what do you do with the workers? in that factory? Do you put them on furlough or do you make them unemployed? Um, So there's definitely a knock on effect. We want people to use less, but we don't want people to get ill because they're in cold houses in the winter. We don't want a recession because heavy industry is closing. So I think it's about sort of adjusting behaviors where we can in a way that is quite frankly not so radical. Uh, So in your own home, if you have a smart meter go and have a look at it. See if there are any um, appliances in your home that are actually just on standby mode instead of fully switched off. So they're still using electricity. Um, you know, dry your clothes outside instead of using a tumble dryer. Also, it's not just about using less overall, but it's about using less at peak times.
0: So realistically, how much uh, energy or how much gas uh, can uh, can Europe really save in this way? And And I'm talking about non-intrusive measures. So can we say 5% or 10% and would this affect the dynamic of prices?
1: So I think we can save um, but the question of how much we can save is really dependent upon factors that are quite frankly beyond our control. The primary factor is the weather uh if it is a a fairly mild winter then we use a lot less gas uh if it's quite a cold winter then we use a lot more so if it's a very cold winter and you're still asking people to turn their thermostats down then i think that's a little more difficult um so that that's that's really one thing The other thing is um, when we use gas for the generation of electricity, sometimes it's affected by electricity sector issues. I'm thinking primarily this year of the um, maintenance and outages at the French nuclear fleet, um, which has affected a lot of uh, nuclear power plants in France, which means, of course, that France has been importing electricity from its neighbors uh, and that for Europe overall, we've been burning more gas to compensate for that. So I think that there are non-intrusive measures that we can make. Um, There are schemes, for example, uh, where people get financial rewards, uh, discounts off their bills for uh, using less electricity at peak times. So, for example, don't run your washing machine during the peak time. Do it sort of, you know, either at night or maybe at lunchtime when everybody's sort of out. But don't do it first thing in the morning or between 4 p.m. and 10 p.m. in the evening, that kind of thing.
0: Are there uh, measures that we can take to encourage um, a different or, you know, more efficient use of energy uh, for businesses, however? And how quickly can those be implemented without, you know, impacting obviously on growth production and, and, uh, you know, and everything that goes with that?
1: Well, I would imagine that there are huge efficiency savings to be made in large office blocks that are often left Uh, you know, with the lights on and the heating on overnight. There are plenty of shops up and down the high street that have electric neon signs that are left on overnight. Um, I saw a fantastic, uh, I, I follow various energy people on Twitter and I saw a fantastic clip uh, earlier today of uh, young people in Paris doing sort of parkour style uh, gymnastics to, to reach up and turn off uh, lights outside uh, shops in Paris. So I think there is plenty of scope for, for efficiency saving without being really uh, too intrusive. Um, And again, you know, same with these large, you know, commercial organizations in large office blocks, making sure everybody turns off their computers uh, at the end of the day. The amount of electricity we could save just from that alone, I think would be would be quite substantial if we needed to be more interventionist. uh, Then I think it would be a question of um, asking uh, retail outlets uh, to shorten their working hours. So the kind of, um, you know, shops and uh, and cafes and whatever that are open until 10 o'clock at night, bring that forward to eight o'clock. You know, uh, maybe on a Sunday, everything should should finish at, at four o'clock or, you know, there are there are sort of moderate interventions that can be made, let's say.
0: But do we, as Europeans, run the risk of, um, you know, austerity-like measures like those that we saw in the 70s uh, uh, during the oil crisis?
1: I think that for this coming winter, uh, I would rather hope not. I think that just sensible small uh, reductions—you know, public information campaigns encouraging people not to use high-intensity appliances during peak hours—and and I say that because. When uh, you have peak um, electricity demand, that is often in the winter, in the evening, when obviously your solar has has stopped uh, and you're very dependent depending on where you live as to how much uh, the wind is blowing, let's say. But if everybody uh, is is using their appliances all at the same time, um, then you are more likely to need more gas to uh, basically top up your electricity supply over and above your other sources. Whereas if we can flatten that, then I think we won't need uh, much more interventionist measures. My, my bigger concern is that as we get through this winter, we will draw down our seasonal storage stocks of gas and then we will face more of a challenge next summer to replenish those storage stocks if we do not wish to face uh, an even more difficult situation next winter.
0: That's a very important point, you know, that you are highlighting um, right now, because obviously the the immediate attention is to this winter, but it, the the big challenge, as you say, could be next winter. Can you just talk us through uh, what could happen? Because as we know, the storages in Europe are quite full. I mean, we're above ninety percent, and uh, actually against expectations, or at least initial expectation, that this could be achieved. But as you explained. If you go through winter and maybe if it's a very uh, rigid and cold winter, you know, those reserves will be run down. So let let t- talk us through it, explain to us. So we get to March and April and what happens at that point? You know, what, what, is, what are the challenges that European nations will face? And how do you see um, the situation developing into next year, into next winter?
1: Well, if we look at the data from the past uh, five years, we can see that the amount of gas that we have left uh, in storage at the end of winter uh, can really range from a minimum of about 20 billion cubic metres, which is what we had in 2018 after the beast from the east, up to uh, maybe around 40 to 45 billion cubic metres. That's at the end of a mild winter Um, in the sort of the year the gas year 2019-2020. Uh, so at the end of that winter, we had significantly more, but that was a very mild winter. Um, and also the very end of winter was impacted by COVID uh, in, in February and March of 2020. And so our gas consumption declined uh you know rather rather notably back then. So there's quite a wide range of uh, volumes that we could have at the end of winter, but there's also quite a wide range in recent years of how much we have had at the start of winter. Uh, So where we are right now, we have around 95 billion cubic meters in storage, which as you rightly point out, is over 90% uh, of our storage capacity is now full. In previous years, we have seen in sort of uh, three of the previous five years, our storage stocks have been roughly between 80 and 90, BCM at the start of winter. So, we have done very well. Uh, The only times that we've had storage stocks higher than that were in the winter, um, sort of October, November 2019 and October 2020, but again, those were exceptional years because the global gas market was very supply long. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, Europe was then still the balancing element of global LNG. And so we were benefiting from being able to import a lot of cheap LNG in the summer and put it all into storage. So where we are right now is, is a very different situation. We have uh, a lot of gas in storage because there has been a very strong policy push. A push by politicians to say these are political targets. We need this gas in storage to make sure that we get through the coming winter, um, because actually the supply that we're getting from everywhere except Russia seems to be close to its its maximum capacity, and we are worried that even though we have now lost most of the pipeline gas that we used to get to Russia, there is still the potential for it to to make a final uh, step of decline. So that's how you often start and end the winter. and of course, the big question is how you move from the beginning to the end of the winter. How Indeed. much you, how much and, you withdraw?
0: And actually, if I can maybe add um you know further uh, specification, I mean, a further clarification. I mean, this winter, obviously we've seen a massive drop in Russian gas imports where we were still importing some Russian gas. I mean, I think about 50 billion cubic meters, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, maybe only one third, let's say, of what we used to have. But, you know, what happens if we don't get even that next year? And if we've run down with our storages because maybe it's been a cold winter. So what, what situation will Europe face?
1: Well, in terms of the amount of Russian gas that we're currently getting, uh, a good way of measuring it is the amount that we receive on a daily basis. So, we measure that in million cubic meters per day. And at present, we're getting around 65 million cubic meters per day. Now, to put that into a context, um, at at sort of this time, early October uh, 2019, so before the pandemic and in a year that was the record for Russian gas exports to Europe, we were getting closer to 500 million cubic meters per day. Um, We got slightly less than that uh, in the fourth quarter of 2020 and significantly less than that this time last year. But even this time last year, we were still getting around 350 million cubic meters per day from Russia. Now, as I say, we're getting about 65. So we're getting a lot less. In terms of that amount that we are getting, we are getting it via two routes. And I would say one of those two routes is at risk during the coming winter. Um, The the split is pretty much 50-50. We get around 35 million cubic meters per day at present via Ukraine. uh, And that is the supply I would consider to be at risk, Uh, but Europe also gets another, at present, 30 million cubic meters per day via the so-called Turkish stream uh, pipeline and via Turkey. But that supply is directed only really into southeastern Europe. Uh, So it's Bulgaria, Greece, Serbia and Hungary. Uh, And since August, uh, the Hungarian government has has prohibited uh, the re-export of gas from Hungary. So if we lose the Russian supply via Ukraine into Central Europe, uh, I don't think the Hungarians will be too enthusiastic about joining in the solidarity movement to share their gas supplies.
0: Okay, so this is obviously quite a problematic scenario, but just uh, for our listeners again to understand. So, uh, if we were to lose even the Ukrainian supply, uh, which, if I remember correctly, is about 30, 35 million um, cubic meters a day, um, is there a possibility of trying to replace that gas? elsewhere. I mean, Europe has already scrambled, you know, by sort of signing deals, you know, trying to top up, uh, you know, all the other pipelines, Algeria, Azerbaijan, you know, buying LNG from everywhere. So the question is, if we lose that, can we replace it? And if we can't replace it, what kind of damage does it make? Does it mean rationing, basically?
1: So to put that number into context, uh, in the last few days, um, the total gas supply from non-Russian sources. So that is European production, pipeline imports from Norway and Azerbaijan and North Africa, LNG imports. Uh, and then you you add the gas that you're currently taking out of storage, but you take away the gas that you're currently putting in to storage, if you like. The, the, the current total non-Russian supply is around 1,100. Um, million cubic meters per day, uh, for the whole of Europe, that is. So in that context, 35 million cubic meters per day via Ukraine is not a huge number. However, the problem uh, is that that supply via Ukraine is directed to only a small number of countries, primarily Slovakia, Austria and Italy. So if we lose the Russian gas transit via Ukraine, you would see the, the impact really on those three countries. And so those three countries, if they can't import gas from their neighbors, so for example, Italy is able to import gas by pipeline from Switzerland and by extension to the north of that, uh, Ge- um, France and Germany. Um, you know, Slovakia uh, has pipeline connections with the Czech Republic and can import gas that way. Uh, Austria also has cross-border gas trade with Germany. So probably what would happen is that the physical impact would be felt in a small number of countries, but when they go looking for gas in their neighbors, uh, it would cause the price to rise in a sort of ripple effect. But in practical terms, probably what would happen uh, if this interruption in supply via Ukraine occurs in the winter, simply that we will take more out of storage. That's that's really what's going to happen. And so we will kick the can down the road and then we will simply face more of a challenge uh, in replenishing our seasonal storage stocks in the summer of 2023.
0: Okay, but to try maybe and, uh, you know, Look at the bright side in a very complex scenario. You had also mentioned at the beginning of our chat that uh, uh, Europe is making an effort in, in building its regasification capacity, particularly Germany, which didn't have any um, of those reg- regasification uh, facilities. Um, so. I mean, could it be the next year, however, we have more of these facilities in place around Europe and somehow they balance out uh, some of the losses we may see from Russia, further losses in in gas supply and somehow, you know, even out the situation? I'm not saying easing the pain, but at least, you know, avoiding rationing.
1: So I think... um these uh, new regasification facilities, they're very much concentrated, as you say, in, in Northern Europe. We have seen uh, two new floating storage and regasification units put in place as part of the Imshaven energy project uh, in the Netherlands. Um, and now the German government has plans for six floating storage and regasification units um, to be placed along Germany's northern coast at Wilhelmshaven, Brunsbüttel, Stad and Lubmin. Um, but those terminals each Each one of the German uh, ones, uh, and as I say, there there are plans for six, uh, should have a capacity of about 5 billion cubic meters per year. Now, the amount of Russian gas that was arriving uh, into uh, Germany via the Nord Stream pipeline was around 55 billion cubic meters per year. So uh, these six new uh, regasification uh, facilities in, in Germany that are planned for 2023 will offset some of what Germany lost uh, through, through Nord Stream uh, being taken offline, but it can't replace everything. The other problem that we have uh, is that while the Dutch were able to move very quickly uh, with Eameshaven, uh so that, that facility is now up and running uh, and has been providing gas to the Netherlands since uh, the middle of September, of the German projects, from my understanding, is that two of them should be operational by the uh, start of January 2023. um, But the others will come in throughout the uh, rest of the year and even a couple of them won't be ready uh, until December 2023. Uh, So the impact of these new uh, regasification facilities will be sort of spread throughout the year, let's say. Uh, So it will certainly help. um, But uh, I think Given how much Russian gas we've lost, and the fact that these new uh, LNG regasification facilities can only offset part of what we've lost, really the balancing has to come on the demand side. Europe needs to, and, and these countries in Central Europe in particular, are going to have to find a way to consume less gas. Um, and I think that it's it's difficult to ask your household consumers to achieve too much. Um, You know, you can encourage them to turn the thermostats down, but you can't force them. So instead, I think it's all about um, trying to reduce electricity demands, to reduce gas in in the power sector. And unfortunately, we're going to see a heavy impact on heavy industry.
0: Absolutely. So if we were to conclude by making a prediction, (laughs) um, can Europe avoid rationing? Uh, You know, if not this winter, uh, potentially, you know, also the next.
1: I think we can avoid rationing this winter. Um, I say that with a caveat that uh, we can avoid rationing under normal market conditions. Um, it would be better if the winter is not cold. Um, but even if it is, I think we can manage. Um, where Europe would face a problem this winter if would be if there was an unexpected uh, interruption to any of our supply sources. So for example, uh, in just this year alone, uh, we've seen a fire uh, at the Freeport LNG export terminal in the United States, which took that that terminal offline uh, for months. Um, Just just before the start of the Covid pandemic, uh, the Hammerfest LNG export terminal in in Norway uh, was taken offline by a fire. So if something like that were to happen to one of the large LNG import terminals uh, in Europe, then that would have a a very sharp effect. The same if there was an unexpected technical outage uh, on one of the main pipelines bringing Norwegian gas uh, into Europe uh, or the main pipeline bringing Algerian gas to Italy. Um, And I think the the potential impact of losing that kind of supply really came to the front of everybody's minds after the explosions on the Nord Stream pipeline. Because for the first time, people thought that actually there could be a threat to physical energy infrastructure in Europe. Previously, we were all talking about supply demand balances and pricing. And then suddenly this question of a physical threat came to the fore. So I think that we can avoid rationing this winter as long as there is not uh, a substantial event like that, let's say. I think the the prices will remain high during the coming winter. And I think the prices will remain high in the summer because we will need to uh, use a lot of gas to inject it into our seasonal storage to prepare for the next winter, 23, 24. And I think that during the first half of the summer of 2023, we are really going to notice the difference year on year as to how much less Russian gas we have, which will make refilling our storage stocks much more difficult. I think that I certainly will be following very closely how much gas we are taking out of storage this winter and how quickly we start to replenish it at the beginning of next summer. So then finally, the, the winter of 23, 24, I think is going to be very challenging. And basically, we need to start working now to prepare for it in terms of putting in place measures to reduce our gas demand. Um, we're doing everything we can, as you see in Germany and the Netherlands to, to increase our regasification uh, facilities. But of course, this also assumes that we are very willing to pay for more LNG cargoes coming into Europe at a time when the market could be Really quite tight, so I think looking forward, I'm afraid it's not. It's optimistic in the sense that I think that we can cope, um, but it's with a strong degree of caution that prices are going to be high, and we are going to have to find energy savings.
0: Absolutely, no, it does sound like it's going to be a very long haul before we get out of this energy crisis, and that, as you said, Europe simply has to learn to live with less energy consumption. Um, thanks a lot, uh, Jack. I mean, it was a, a real pleasure to have you uh, for the exchange and to go through this discussion. Um, thank you very much. Uh, it, it was a pleasure.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlit and Strazen Netter in London. Subscribe to the exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, On Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.